talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is on the board. Ticats in Saskatchewan at Tim Hortons Field tomorrow. Getting the black and gold ready tonight. Here's Scott Thompson! My head's bobbing like a pigeon. I don't know whether to do that or do the pogo. Hey, good afternoon. It is 3.09. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, Will Erskine on the board, Ted Michaels and Diana Weeks in the newsroom, and Lisa Pileski joining us now, who's out and about doing her thing and stopped by to say hi, and has picked the top hour tune for today. Uh, thank you, Lisa, for contributing. We always love that. Happy to help. So tell us what it is, what we're hearing. It's a little too old, uh, new for daddy, sorry, new for daddy. <laughs> Notice it's, how Ted's gone. He's not even in the room, man. No, no, I, he, he got so confused when I just mentioned a name that he had never heard of, so he just, just wandered off. But uh, that is Lord Huron and uh, Meet Me in the Woods from their 2015 album. Uh, See, yeah. you know, so even you, you know, like Lisa, you're giving us albums that are at least five, six years old, so they're not new, and I still have no idea what uh, what this is about. How did you hear this band? How did you discover this band? Well, uh, I have a lot of friends who are way more uh, up-to-date in the music scene, and uh, this band actually came out with a new album last year, and um, this, I, you know, so that kind of introduced me, and uh, they're really kind of, apparently Diana said she saw them, too, open for uh, Foo Fighters at one point. So. Yeah. Oh, so they're in there. Cool. the uh, zeitgeist and they had that huge song that was in 13 reasons why oh yeah that was a big one that kind of put them on the map but i had uh, liked them before that too i'm cool like that alternative right <laughs> safe yeah. to say alternative uh yeah alternative rock kind of yeah. yeah there you go all right ladies thanks very much uh much appreciated uh you've stumped the chump once again and really when, when to think about it all you have to do is get into this millennium and that's pretty much confusing ted and i uh, thanks so much, and feel free. You're all going to join us around the uh, big round table, and you're welcome to, Lisa, if you're hanging. Uh, coming up after the 4.30 news, Ted Michaels will be there, too. Also, uh, Will Erskine. We always let uh, the rest of the staff pick the uh, top hour tune today. The staff. Listen to that. I sound like I'm I'm on the CBC or something. Uh, all right. Uh, another great show coming up. Hope you hang around for it. And, uh, uh, you know, earlier on in the uh, in the week, we were talking about appliances and how hard it is and supply chain uh, stuff and all that. And, uh, you know, uh, it's been a busy week, lots going on. And, and today uh, I was looking to sleep in like an extra half an hour or, or, or an hour or so uh, uh, this morning. And uh, it was about 7 o'clock. I got... And what, 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 what's, dad, dad, there's a sound downstairs. There's something going on, something going on. And uh, there's a ticking sound, a ticking sound. The ticking sound is water coming from the roof and hitting the floor. Yes, good morning. And uh, so that's what I've been dealing with all morning. And, and so, uh, wait, do you hear this? This traces back to the fridge in the kitchen. The fridge in the kitchen. Because, you know, they got those water things in them now. You got to have one of those, don't you? Sure. So, uh, ice cube thing. Needs water. Water line. No problem. It's not the water line. It's inside the fridge. It's a valve something inside the fridge. Dripping in, the, you know, down the fridge, out the floor. And it'd be nice if it rolled out into the kitchen floor so you could go, hey, there's something going on there. But no, instead it went the other way. And down below. And, uh, you know, in the room and, and, you know, the roof uh, leaking, you know what that's like. Uh, do you think it's going to stay up? Gee, I don't know. Don't poke it. Don't touch it, man. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, it's the fridge. We figured it out where it was all coming from. And the fridge is like five years old. Five years old. So there you go. We've been complaining all week. and We've been hearing various stories all week. I was telling you about my neighbors. I'm just like the neighbors. Now it's like, you know, five-year-old fridge. It's leaking. It's leaking like a, you know, I don't know, <laughs> make up a leaking joke. So, yeah, there you go. Five years. We got to call people. Like, what the heck is that? And again, you know, I, I would, you know, well, it's the line. It says, the, no, it's the fridge. 
There you go. And, you know, for the next uh, Lord knows how long it'll take uh, to get this all fixed, uh, you're going to hear about it every day. Sorry. Uh, no, no, no. I'm sure it's, hey, it could have been, here's my wife. It could have been much worse. What if, uh, you know, no one was here? What if it wasn't a global pandemic and no one was actually home in the during the day? What if Kurt hadn't gone downstairs and noticed it? Because I don't think it was happening for a few hours, although who knows, I'll figure that out when the roof comes down. But, yeah, you know, it could have been worse. Could have been worse. Guess it could have been worse. So there's the one way to look at it. Um, and then, you know, on the other hand, my fridge could have lasted at least 10 years. That would have been nice. All right. Uh, we've heard lots about uh, COVID-19 this week. And obviously the big news is that uh, it, Health Canada has approved uh, the Pfizer vaccine for kids 5 to 11. Also, uh, lots of testing announced earlier on this week by the Ontario government. Uh, they're going home. Uh, the kids are going home at, at uh, the holiday time with uh, testing and such. So uh, although we do seem to see cases going up, uh, more and more of us are becoming vaccinated, which only helps. Let's bring in Michelle Baird, Public Health Services, COVID-19 Operations Chief, and talk about Hamilton's uh, mass vaccination clinics that uh, are in uh, operation this weekend. Michelle, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. It's great to talk to you. So first, let's give us a bit of an update. How's Hamilton doing? How is hospital capacity doing? So at this point in time in Hamilton, with respect to cases and where we are with our hospitalizations overall, our case numbers, you know, remain steady. We're, we're seeing a little bit of an upward trickle, and you know that other areas of the province certainly are seeing increases in cases, but we're trying. We are right now trying to kind of hold our hold our own. We are seeing uh, an increase in the number of outbreaks we're seeing, though. Are you concerned? I mean, like for example, 793 new cases today. 470 of those not vaccinated, and I get lots of email on this. 323 were fully vaccinated, uh, and many are saying those that are vaccinated are still getting it. So why get vaccinated? Obviously, these people are not getting as sick as they would and ending up in ICUs if they were not vaccinated. Mm-hmm. However, are you concerned by the amount of people who are testing positive who have been vaccinated? No, it is to be expected, Scott, and you're absolutely right that the the good news is that those folks who are fully vaccinated but do test positive for COVID, um, the vaccine still offers great protection against a severe illness and hospitalization. So we're certainly not seeing the hospitalizations that we saw in previous waves and, and the deaths as well. So certainly encourage people to get vaccine that, you know, those breakthrough cases aren't unexpected. Um, and they tend to be a bit milder. And so that's also, you know, why they are rolling out third doses at this point in time, that for some individuals, um, you know, for lots of reasons, your immunity might be starting to wane a little bit. So if you do, if you are eligible for a booster, certainly that's something to think about right now. All right. We remember when the vaccine first arrived, there were mass clinics opened up and such. First Ontario Centre, all of that. They have since uh, closed down as we got more and more people vaccinated. There became more efficient ways of doing all of this. Uh, But you've got a clinic opening up this weekend. What does that mean? What does that say? Uh, Interpret that for us, Michelle. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I think I probably speak for lots of parents and uh, young people in Hamilton today when I say, you know, it's quite an exciting day to hear that the 5 to 11s are now eligible to receive vaccine. And so we are opening another clinic um, on Barton. We opened this week at the Centre on Barton, also operating at Lyme Ridge. And truly, these clinics are being set up in ways that will welcome um, those younger clients that we bring in. And again, we're back in that place where we do want to, um, as efficiently as possible, move people through clinics. We're still offering mobile clinics, of course, and lots of pharmacies in Hamilton continue to offer COVID vaccine as well as primary care. So, Scott, really just trying to provide people um, different channels and opportunities and depending on what fits for you and your family so that those clinic options are there. All right, and so Mass Clinic opens up uh, opens up at Center on Barton as uh, more and more people are getting more and more vaccine boosters and such. If people want to find out more, website, where do we go? Uh, www.hamilton.ca slash child vaccine for our vaccine for children, and then you can just do the hamilton.ca uh, vaccine if you just want general vaccine information. All the information to book clinics is on our website, of course, and we anticipate 
early next week, we'll be um, opening up booking once we have supply for that 5 to 11-year-old group. All right, exciting time. The kids have now been approved for Pfizer vaccine. Hopefully next week things will get rolling. Michelle Baird, Public Health Services, COVID-19 Operations Chief, City of Hamilton. Michelle, thanks so much for the time. Thanks for all the work that you have done and the crew's done uh, trying to keep us all safe in the hammer. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Scott. You too. All right. Uh, I want to bring in uh, Elliot Tepper, a, pl- a political science uh, professor, Carleton University. This is a fascinating story, and it's just starting to get attention. Uh, sir, well, I'll leave it at that. Uh, China's foreign ministry says it is unaware of the contra- uh, controversy surrounding a tennis professional who has disappeared after accusing a former top official of sexually assaulting her. And the Women's Tennis Association is now threatening to pull out of China if this uh, remains unaddressed. Meanwhile, U.S. President Biden was noncommittal when asked on Thursday, and the Prime Minister was sitting with him at this news conference, if the United States would boycott uh, the Beijing Olympics. Let's think. Uh, find out what Elliot Tepper has to say. Carleton University with us now. Elliot, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you. Good afternoon, Scott. So is it going to work for China just to deny, deny, deny? That's kind of the key uh, question of the minute, is what will make sure that it doesn't uh, just go away because they deny, deny, deny. The foreign ministry said this is not our, our purview. The quote you opened up with is, well, this isn't a foreign affairs uh, matter, so we don't know anything about it. The uh, basics on this is that uh, a, a champion for China, uh, a well-known international tennis star, Peng Shui, who is an, a national hero with I don't know millions on her domestic uh, Weibo account, her, her local account, has suddenly disappeared and gone quiet, uh, hasn't been heard from since November 2nd, after she posted that she had uh, had a consensual uh, arrangement with the, a member of the most, and this is a key point, innermost sanctum of the Chinese Communist Party, the Politburo, and that uh, he had assaulted her and she's uh, three years ago, and she wants to, the world to know that she was assaulted, kind of bringing the Me Too movement to China. She then disappeared from view. So did her posting. Her posting disappeared from view. Uh, what th- one thing that I don't think has been noticed much is inside China, it is not known except for... Um, those who are spreading it uh, on their own. Everything you and I are talking about is not known inside China because they took down the posting, and anything they've said has been in English outside of China. <laughs> so the, uh, the fact is she's, been, she's disappeared, she hasn't been heard from, then suddenly there was a note popped up uh, saying, don't worry, everything's fine, I, I was not assaulted, I'm just at home, the, uh, I'm resting, uh, don't worry about me. But the Women's Tennis Association president said, that doesn't look right to me. We don't accept this as her. We haven't seen her. We've tried to reach her. And this is now small, snowballed to the point where it is now an international matter whether she is, in fact, uh, uh, under arrest of some kind. In any event, she hasn't been seen or heard of. And this is a matter of concern just before the Olympics, of course, mm. coming up in February. Was this once consensual? Is that what you said? Well, that's what she said. Uh, this is not. Uh, <laughs> there's an awful lot that we still haven't learned about all this. But apparently, uh, according to her own text, and I've not been able to find the full announcement, uh, the, the full text of what she first posted. But apparently, she said in there that um, she was coerced in an early a earlier period, and then she developed right. feelings for him, and then. Um, they had an on-again, off-again relationship of some kind, and then um, he used me and discarded me. And then um, three years ago after a match, uh, he demanded sexual favors, and she said, mm. no, 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 uh, that, uh, <laughs> that his wife was posted outside the bedroom door. Yeah. And she was, sorry, don't know what that is. Yeah, that's uh, so. That was very bizarre too to hear that his wife was actually posted yeah. outside well, the door. This, remember, they're guarding. getting very hazy accounts out of this. Yeah. Uh, the bottom line here is that uh, there's been an accusation of sexual assault by a, an innermost member of the Communist Party elite, and she disappeared and hasn't been heard from or seen since. 
and the focus now increasingly of the world is where is she? What, and obviously, and as you said, heading up to the Beijing Olympics uh, at the Three Amigos Summit, when the president was meeting with the prime minister, he was asked that question uh, specifically about Beijing, was very noncommittal on it. There's been chatter that the de- that uh, officials won't go, but the team will. Any thought on that? Yes, this issue has developed since that time. That is, yeah. uh, while the conversation has been going on for a very long time about, you know, Beijing held uh, the Olympics, what, 2008, and now suddenly they're doing another one. They're quite willing to host these international events as part of their projection onto the world that we are, you know, a big and important uh, power country and come on in and see just how good we are, see what we're able to do. And it's very impressive what they're able to do in that sense. But um, after the Uyghurs and Hong Kong and then Tibet, and, you know, our, our parliament has unanimously passed a resolution saying that China's guilty of genocide. So the, should, there, should we be going has been a conversation for a long time. The fact that what to do about having an Olympics with a power that's accused in this way, discussion of, um, well, we'll just diplomatically boycott, but we'll let yeah. them do but it's, it's too late, in effect. I mean, the chances, what you needed to do if there was real concern was to move them out of Beijing, and there was yeah. a move at one point to bring them back to Canada. The Winter Olympics, after all, Canada and the U.S., Seattle and Vancouver, but that didn't happen. So now we are, before this emerged, in a situation where all these fine young athletes around the world would be deprived if you suddenly boycott. But this has now emerged as a possible threat to, uh, to uh, make even more countries more willing at least to politically boycott, but that won't resolve the situation. Elliot Tepper with us, political science, Carleton University, talking about the disappearance of Peng Shui, a tennis star in uh, China that has not been heard of since early November. Elliot, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Oh, you're very welcome. Take care. Catch up on the news and information you've missed. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Uh, joining us now, Ted Michaels. News coming up at the bottom of the hour. Ted, I remember being a kid at the fairgrounds watching Dewey Robertson and Whipper Willie Watson take on the Love Brothers. I go back further than that, of course, said Ted. I remember Johnny the Beast Yaketti. <laughs> who was who who played the role very well and I remember one time a friend of mine quick story was so surprised cuz he was standing at the bank and Johnny the Beast Yaketti was standing in front of him and he asked the teller to, to, to give me 20s and 50s and he was he speaks English said, you idiot <laughs> it's all an act yes. anyway. remember this Remember the sleeper hold with Haystack Calhoun? Uh, what about the, uh, you know, catch as catch can, you know, the camel clutch, all those other, ter- you know, <laughs> all the stuff that that, that that you would put your younger sibling in, you know? Who was the guy with the big cowboy boots and the hat that would come in through the ring? Oh. Long, long tall Texan? Long tall. Oh, I can't remember. I can't all right, it. there you go. We're going to have to ask Greg. All right, this Saturday at Tim Hortons Field against uh, the Ticats, obviously against the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. Uh, and during that game, before that game, they will honor the memory of Angelo Mosca. And, of course, uh, you know, we don't have to say anything more about that, uh, how big a figure this man was not only in the town but also on the football field. Uh, Angelo was not only a tie cat but obviously king of the wrestling ring at a what some say uh, was the glory days of wrestling and actually wrestled longer than he played football, known as King Kong Mosca. To talk more about this aspect of Angelo's career, let's bring in Greg Oliver, author, sports writer. He is with us now. Greg, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thanks for having me on the show. I liked your little wrestling talk leading into it. I think you guys were thinking of Tex McKenzie there, the big guy that lumbered into the ring, stepping over it. Very tall, very tall. Yes, he used to literally step over top of people with these giant cowboy boots and like a big old hat. It's uh, Tex McKenzie. There you go. Was he also known as the Long Tall Texan? Uh, I, that's probably one of the nicknames. I mean, they it would change territory to territory, right? Wherever they were wrestling, maybe he was from Utah and another place. So that that was the fun of wrestling. And and as a historian, that's part of our challenge is figuring out some of these backgrounds. Whereas with you know a guy like King Kong Mosca, he was true true to himself the whole way through. So how did Angelo fit into all of this? Talk about the end of his uh, football career and how he ventured into wrestling. 
but see that that's the misnomer right there. Is he was wrestling all along mm. in the off seasons. It wasn't often in yeah, that's the right <laughs> where he yeah. was. Yeah. But you know, yeah. in in nineteen fifty nine, he's learning how to wrestle. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it parallels his wrestling career, and when football season's not on, maybe he's out in Calgary, you know, wrestling with the Hearts and the Stampede Wrestling, or yeah. maybe he gets booked out in Hawaii and learns a little bit more there. He was a business genius that way. He knew how to make more money and, and make more notoriety. And was he, uh, that's an interesting point, would he have made more money wrestling or with the Thai Cats? Uh, probably wrestling. For sure, but they they went hand in hand with him. He liked the yeah. true competitiveness, obviously, of football, uh, and wrestling is a show. And yeah. Mosca knew how to do both. And and even when he was out playing football, I mean, you, you play to the crowd, right? Some guys just never got that. That you know, it's still entertainment. Yes, it's competition as football, but if you're not drawing them in, if they're not reading about you in the papers, they're not going to come see you. So wrestling was an easy way for him to do that because he didn't have to have a a mask on the way he did in football, but by the same token, everybody learned that number 68, and you have to watch out. So talk about his place, because, again, as you were saying, there's a lot of different regional wrestling going on at that time. You certainly can't compare it to what we have today, Uh, and many say this is the golden era of of wrestling. What are your thoughts on that? Well, every era you grew up on is is the golden era, right? So Good for point, me, yeah. that was the '80s when when Hulkamania was running wild. Whereas yeah, you know, yeah. you guys are a little bit older and you remember those guys like your Yukon Eriks and uh, that kind of thing. So um, it was the golden era for sure for Mosca because he was able to travel. He was able to go to San Francisco and stay there for you know months or a year and and make a living there. And then he could go off and do a trip to Japan and earn a good payday over a couple of weeks there and then come back and maybe go to Vancouver or, or end up in Charlotte and, and that territory that went up and down the Carolinas. There were lots of options and therefore variety, whereas now, yeah, they're all big national touring companies and there's no chance to hone your craft the same way, wrestling night after night and often coming back to the same town a week later. So you had to be on your toes and really know how to change things up and and get them coming back. You said change things up. That being said, everybody seemed to have a character. Everybody seemed to have a role in in this sport. What what was his? What was he known for? Well, he played both a good guy and a bad guy, and it often depended on where he was and and what was needed at the time. Even as a good guy, though, like he was an intimidating dude, right? And and you believed in him, uh, even if you were scared of him, if he was the bad guy. Um, so he had a really great role. He knew his place, and he knew how wrestling's kind of tricky that way. You don't want to denigrate your opponent. You want to talk him up, right? So if you're going to say, well, I'm really worried about facing you, Ric Flair, you're you know, telling people that you're going to beat him, but you also know he's going to be a great challenge, right? But if you get out there on the football field, you, it's sort of the opposite. You want to, <laughs> we're going to beat yeah. you. yeah. So, uh, difference between this era, the Angelo Mosca era of wrestling, and where we are today? Well, it's, just, it's television. That's the, the whole difference. Today, it's, yeah. a, it's a complete televised product. Uh, Mosca, you wanted to see in person. So that drove people to the arenas. Like in Minneapolis, you'd go see him. And, and then that, that tape that he was on with the AWA there would circulate all through that territory. And so he'd be wrestling in Denver. He'd be wrestling in Omaha or Chicago all based off whatever he taped there in Minneapolis. And, and so it was a TV product then, but it's not the same as it is today, where all it really is is a television product. It's all about drawing people in, and it's still destination programming, just like you know the CFL or the NFL or the NHL are. And that's one of those key buzzwords they use today with television. It's destination. You're trying to watch it live, so you can talk about it live with your friends. Moscow mm. wouldn't have done well in the social media world, I don't think. Interesting point. This Saturday, Hamilton Ticats honoring the memory of Angela Mosca at the game against Saskatchewan. Uh, but many know him for his wrestling career as much as his football career. Greg Oliver with his author, sports writer. Greg, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Go King Kong Mosca. Take care, guys. Let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University. He's with us now. Henry, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. 
I am. Thank you, Scott. So it's interesting, you know, uh, especially with Biden really not saying much about when questioned on the electric vehicles and the incentives to the Americans uh, that they would only receive if they completely bought American-produced vehicles with components and such. Uh, is is this going to all die as it tries to get through the House and the Congress and it's all irrelevant, or, or, or where is this heading? Are we heading for a debate over uh, the, the new Free Trade Act? I, I think we're going we're gonna to be heading into a lot of complicated, behind-the-scenes technical de- uh, arguments, debates, and uh, proposals between Canada and the U.S. Uh, I'm sure when the Americans came up and uh, Biden endorsed uh, this tax credit for American-made electrical vehicles in, un- in union shops, he never thought for one second, how is this going to affect Canada? And well, our uh, team went down there uh, with the prime minister and uh, others, and they said, "Hey, this is really a problem for us. You know, you're going to really wreck our, you know, our automobile, our motor vehicle industry, which is the second largest uh, industry in in the country and the, and the largest in Ontario." So it was an opening salvo to just try to get everybody's attention. And then I think a lot of this is going to shift behind. You know, behind closed doors, and we'll just keep our fingers crossed that uh, the people negotiating on our side, mainly senior level bureaucrats with senior level American bureaucrats, can work out something so that uh, we can mitigate and and keep this from really causing havoc here. Um, obviously, we've gone through a global pandemic. Some has made, I guess, some countries have turned protectionist as a result of this. However, let's be honest, this is the continent of North America, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's Canada, the United States, or Mexico. We certainly know uh, the United States drives the bus here. But is, can, considering what has happened with supply chains and all this other stuff, isn't there more of a need now between these three leaders to come up with some sort of North American pact? That's exactly what they should do, but the problem is for the Americans and uh, is that the Americans essentially are angry that they lost a lot of their manufacturing uh, to other countries, some of it to us, but mainly a whole lot to Mexico, China, uh, and other places. And uh, it's, you can't, it's very hard to reason with the average American because all they see is uh, empty, uh, empty factories and people who've lost their good, good union-paying jobs over the last... 50 years. And so that's, that's what we're up against. And so essentially, that's why Canada has basically, for the most part, tries to keep this out from being a dramatic American issue. They basically, you know, what we basically have done over the last 50, 60 years is essentially to argue this, you know, tech and technical things behind closed doors. And for the most part, we've been pretty good in terms of getting, you know, of protecting in, uh, our uh, motor vehicle industry. So, um, you know, that's we'll have to see what's going to happen here now. Of course, Biden is very, is you know, his popularity rating has been dropping. He's got, he's trying to show that he can really do things for the U.S. So he has to adapt to sort of what people feel, and they feel that you know we shouldn't give any quarter to any other country they've been stealing our jobs and we don't care who it is and so that's that's the problem we're in right now uh it'll be fascinating to see if there can be some sort of united front uh as we get through this that will benefit all three is mm. this a solvable problem well i mean it is and i mean the problem is they're gonna cause problems for the uh, you know the chains change uh the uh, production chains you know that 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 already exists. I mean, we know that the auto motor vehicle industry, in particular, pieces of metal go, you know, and other components yeah. go back and forth across the border to make yeah. the cars. You know, you any car we're going to have, you know, I don't care where it's made in North America, you're going to have pieces that are made in Canada. You're going to have pieces made in the United States. You're going to have probably some pieces in made in Mexico and in China. And yeah. uh, even though if it's maybe even assembled in an American plant, it's got all these different components, and these pieces go back and forth. And so the average American doesn't have a sense that, that that's what happens. And they can't, you know, and they don't realize that you just simply can't make all the parts for any one automobile in one country because what has happened is that the companies have basically set up plants to do make specific things in a place where it makes uh, sense and they, they can do it economically. And that, that's the average American doesn't understand that. 
And I think most people don't understand that. And if you, you know, you're going to just home mess up the whole the whole system. And and, and at the end of the day, uh, cars are going to, you know, motor vehicles will cost so much more than they do now if, mm. if you let something like this go ahead. Henry Jasek with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, talking about the fallout from the Three Amigos Summit, especially around the auto industry. Henry, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Okay, same to you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Will Erskine on the board, Ted Michaels and Diana Weeks uh, joining us out of the newsroom and around the big round table uh, for another edition. Uh, we've got lots to cover here, so let's get to it because I know what you, I know what this, where this is going to go. Uh, let's start with the poll question of the day. Will you get your kids vaccinated? Obviously approved uh, Pfizer today, 5 to 11. If you had a 5 to 11, uh, would you do this? 66% saying yes. Four percent saying they'd wait. The rest said no. Ted, would you get the kids? Are you concerned about the kids? Yes and no. I mean, this is to me, this is no different than having them get their shots when they have to go to school. We all yeah. have those uh, little yellow uh, uh, books that we used to get when we, uh, well, not me because I'm old, but the kids now, God, yeah. I sound, the kids these days, kids, <laughs> the youth. <laughs> Lately, nope. people, kids going to school have had that yellow immunization book. The card, yep, to show. sure. So I, I really don't think that this is a, a big issue. I really don't. Diana? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know. I agree. Will? Well, I, I, as far as I know, I have no kids, but I, uh, I, I strongly encourage... But you're really five to eleven. You're really five to eleven at heart. So would you? Yeah, yeah, get yeah. Go <laughs> ahead. <laughs> I like the way you framed that. No, I'm sorry. The 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 people who are like, well, I'm gonna wait and see. With that, that's the same thing we already heard with the rest of this. No, we already know the vaccine's all right. Let's go out and get the vaccination. I understand. I can be empathetic, but let's just get this over with. Yeah. All right. Uh, 793 new cases today. This is because I get asked this a lot on email uh, from listeners. 400 out of the 793, 470 cases not vaccinated. 723 fully vaccinated. Uh, are you concerned by the number of vaccinated people that are testing positive? Doesn't mean they're getting sick. Certainly not ending up in ICU, but are you concerned by the number of vaccinated that are testing positive? Ted? No, because uh, they told us that uh, even if you're vaccinated or double vaccinated, there still is a chance that you yep. could get COVID. However, generally, if you are double vaxxed and you do get COVID, it's not quite as bad uh, a blow to your system as if you were mm-hmm. not vaccinated at all. So um, they're also, I mean, I know on the, today, the story in the States, that there are some places they're concerned as, as winter is coming. But again, I think we're a lot better off than we were this time last year. So let's not, uh, let's not uh, panic anybody here. Diana? Yeah, I mean, look, the whole point is to keep, you know, keep the strain off of the healthcare system. So regardless yeah. of people that are vaccinated or testing positive for COVID-19, if they're not, you know, tying up the ICUs, the ventilators, the emergency rooms and, you know, creating a backlog anymore, that's ultimately what we want. And they're going to survive and hopefully be OK, uh, you know, but compared to someone who may be not vaccinated, we don't know if that's necessarily the case. All right, let's talk about Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, not guilty on all charges. Uh, and you news people can jump in if I've got my facts incorrect, because I haven't followed the story completely. But obviously, Wisconsin uh, riots forming. Uh, Kyle comes from another state with a automatic weapon. And long story short, three people shot, two people are killed, one is wounded, and he is found not guilty. Who wants to start with this one, uh, Ted? Uh, well, um, are you I- surprised? Are you surprised that he's not guilty on all charges? I guess that's the question. Uh, you know what? There were some people who had a feeling that this was going to happen. Um, obviously, he had a very good legal team, but I think what concerns... Okay, first of all, the fact that there are you know, these people shot, that's a given. But the fact that he came from another state to, mm-hmm. quote, defend uh, and protect, uh, he's in Illinois. Why is he going to Wisconsin? I, you know, I don't understand that logic. Now, I'm just hoping that things calm down, that things don't happen and uh, progress to a state like we had in the past where something happens and people start rioting and, and uh, you know, causing problems. But uh, that's my major concern in this whole thing is uh, why did he go from one state to another? Diana? You know, I, 
I want to say I'm surprised, but really I'm kind of not. I mean, I'm you talk either. about a blatant illustration of white privilege here. We knew that when cops sat him down, thanked him and got him a bottle of water, you know, at 15 minutes after this, we knew that this was different had he, you know, not been a white man in America. And so basically, I think what happened today was that with these, you know, this verdict that the jury handed down is basically saying, look, you can break the law, you can carry around a military grade assault rifle, shoot and kill people and then get away with it. Like that's the message that was just sent out to armed vigilantes across the United States today. Also, I think a lot of us here are looking from the, at this from a Canadian perspective, which, of course, it's a different scenario in the United States of America. But, yet, you know, are, are you surprised? I am not, simply because when someone, just as you described, Diana, walks past police and they don't even take a second glance at yeah, it. They pat him on the back. Here you go. Then, How, are you hydrated? Here you go. Have a bottle of water. Then, you know, I mean, how can anybody be surprised that this ended up where it did? Will, you want to weigh in? Yeah, I'm. my reaction is I'm surprised that I was surprised. I did not realize. Mm. That's a good I, way to put it. Yeah, I, I mean, I thought maybe there had been a little progress. Uh, this whole story seems to me like there's an underlying whole thing of radicalization. I mean, this kid w- decides I'm going to go across. I'm going to get my mom to drive me to this other state and she's going to let me go, and then I'm going to go out with my gun. There's so much undercurrent there, but I did think, I thought at least he would get a slap on the wrist, and that's what we would be disappointed by. That's where I was, and now Mm. this happened, and we shouldn't be surprised, but I actually was slightly, and it's sickening. Interesting. All right, let's cheer things up as we get out of here on a Friday. Tie Cats this weekend, win or lose, Saskatchewan. Uh, This game wasn't supposed to count. Obviously, uh, it still does for the Tie Cats. Your thoughts, Ted? You predicted it. Uh, You predicted it last week. Your thoughts this week? uh, Well, the Tiger Cats will win because Saskatchewan is resting everybody. Yeah, no one's there. No, nobody's there. And, of course, uh, they they will know by tomorrow what happens in the game tonight, that if Montreal beats Ottawa, which they should because Ottawa stinks, then Montreal uh, wins. They're two points up on the Tiger Cats, so Hamilton has to win. But the Tiger Cats should win. However... That sets up the game against Montreal next week, which is uh, a lot more interesting than what's going to happen or not happen tomorrow. Diana, want to weigh in? Yeah, I think the Cats are going to win. I mean, uh, I thought they were going to win last time, but that was a total blowout that happened on BMO Field. But uh, yeah, no, I I think they got a good chance tomorrow. All right, and don't forget, Angelo Mosca is honored uh, before the game, which kickoff is at 4 o'clock, and we will have it all here right for you at CHML. Interesting email from Crispy. Your panel is clueless. Clearly, they didn't pay attention to the actual trial, talking about Kyle Rittenhouse, and got their information from the left-wing media. I'm disappointed in you and your show for not having an informed opinion. Uh, you're completely confused. This was not a discussion about U.S. law. This was not a discussion about what happened in the trial. Nothing, nothing of that at all. This was a discussion about what the American gun culture has become and the fact that a kid can walk down a street with a, uh, a replica or whatever it is of a, of a machine gun or what have you, AK-47, 15, what have you, who cares? I'm sure you know more about it than I do. And the cop's not even bat an eye? That's the point we're making. The trial, whatever, yeah, that's that's... Second, uh, that's the amendment stuff. Second amendment, what is it? and 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 uh, and and the you know your right to defend yourself and your property and that's the gun culture in the United States of America. It's just the way it is. But as far as clueless, because we didn't pay attention to the actual trial, I think everybody's well aware of where that's going and where that went. We weren't discussing the trial or why they ended up where they were. It's pretty obvious. When a guy walks past a cop with a gun, what the court's going to say, <laughs> that's the point. Not the fact that, well, you know, if you look at the tape and you follow what the lawyer said, well, I'm sure they presented a great case. They won. That's not the point. The point is about a kid walking down a street with a machine gun and the cops don't even bat an eye. And you're hiding behind the trial? Woo-wee! <laughs> uh, a lot more work to do here than we think. Uh, anyway, thanks for the email. Keep it coming. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. We would love to hear from you. Uh, yeah, I think that was the point we were making. No one was surprised about the trial. Surprised that it 
happens. The truth and only the truth. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Great news uh, all uh, pretty much this week as we hear about more testing going on and obviously the approval of uh, the Pfizer drug, the Pfizer vaccine for kids 5 to 11 years of age. And uh, it looks like today, obviously, it was approved. And they say within the week, uh, hopefully, this will start arriving and the campaign can start to uh, get the last cohort done here, uh, the 5 to 11-year-olds. Let's bring in Dr. Martha Fulford, Pediatric Infectious Disease Specialist at McMaster's Children's Hospital and Hamilton Health Sciences, and with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, thank you. Yourself? I'm doing good. Thanks so much. So once we get this cohort vaccinated, 5 to 11, um, and, you know, that's pretty much everybody we can do. I'm, I'm not sure if we're going to go much below that or not. How much of a difference do you expect, say, 90 days, three months down the road from uh, actually starting this campaign? Uh, kids obviously not really affected as much, but will we see in, in the overall numbers uh, some sort of a dent here? So I'm going to actually back up one little step um, before I try to answer that, which is Health Canada um, is the organization that approves any new sort of medicine or device for use in Canada. And then the recommendation for how it gets rolled out, in this case, would be from from our National Advisory Committee on Immunizations, or NACI. Um, And so just it's an important distinction because I would hope that... that, uh, you know, the, the, this is early information we've got, obviously. And so the NACI recommendation is actually uh, right now a discretionary one. And so that what they've stated, uh, and it's as of today, is that it may be offered to children 5 to 11 years of age who do not have contraindications. And, of course, they're also recommending a dosing interval of eight weeks before the first and the second dose because we've seen in adults that that gives a, probably a better and more sustained immune response. Um, so... You know, when vaccines, of course, are, it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's not an easy conversation because every group has its own benefit uh, conversation. And so I think, as you pointed out, we know that children are at very low risk uh, from uh, COVID itself. Uh, in, in Ontario, if you look at the Ontario numbers since the pandemic began January, I mean, the numbers will go back to January of last year of 2020. In the 5 to 11 uh, age group, We've had only 86 children who have been admitted to hospital in that entire time uh, with a positive test. Some of them would have been admitted for other reasons, but we, we know that 86 kids got admitted uh, who tested positive, and in that age group, no child of that 5 to 11 group actually died as a result of COVID, which is very good news, obviously. And clearly a very different conversation when we speak about vulnerable adults. So we talk about the benefit of the vaccine is going to be, um, we hope, the secondary benefit of uh, decreased transmission. And at this point, I think we're all sort of cautiously monitoring. Uh, and NASI points it out that we'll continue to monitor uh, the information because the trial was small. It's a phase two, phase three trial. Uh, can I? I, 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 I just want to interrupt you there, Doctor, sure. um, um, because I, I, I'm really looking for clarity here. And you said that NASI said that it may be used. Uh, obvious, but obviously, not that it should be used, but it may be used. So, what do we do here, Doctor? Because again, you seem to have reintroduced NASI to this conversation, but of which NASI they are not are... holding. I understand that. I, I'm well aware of what NASI is. Yeah. We've been covering this for eighty some odd weeks. Yeah, we are, we're also well aware of all of the confusion that has been caused when NASI speaks out one way and Health Canada speaks out another. I thought we had rectified that when NASI was speaking through Health Canada as they did today. So, it has this drug been approved for kids five to eleven? or not yes so that's i think what we should make really clear as opposed to but, maybe use and nasty saying one thing and health canada saying another because that's oh, kind of how we got into the but, that's how we got into the situation before with very conflicting information yeah. and what it would eventually turned out for the public to be shopping for the best vaccine yeah so i think we we need to take so so what i'm going to say about the the pediatric vaccine is that it's not a one size all so it's early data we have it was a small number of children we know that for kids, the benefit won't be in preventing severe disease because that's not their risk. The trial is too small, 
and both Health Canada and NACI state this. The size of the trial is actually too small to detect any rare adverse events that could occur um, in greater than any frequency more frequent than one in a thousand people. So that's being monitored very closely. And so in the end, um, I do think it's important that when we, we talk about this, that we respect the best available data, both from Health Canada, and, and you can, the Health Canada points this out as well, as well as NACI, that, and, and I would concur with this, that it can be offered to anybody who wishes it, but that given that there are still short-term uncertainties regarding um, the pediatric vaccination, we don't know what the adverse uh, event rate will be, so we have no idea because the, t- the numbers are too small whether or not kids will get myocarditis. And we know that that's happening in teenagers, the rates. So I think that what we're saying is kids who are at high risk, absolutely. Uh, and, and we know that there's certain conditions that, that kids are at higher risk. Kids where there's a, a, member, a family member in the home where that person might not be able to be vaccinated. Doctor, if I could interrupt you again, it sounds to me like you're not recommending this for 5 to 11 years olds for everyone. You're saying for specific situations, it should be good, as opposed to what the rest of us are doing, which is uh, everybody should get the vaccine. So what you're telling us is that 5 to 11-year-olds should not get the vaccine unless they're in a high-risk situation. Or the families are, are prefer that, that they understand where we're at with the information, they understand that it's early data and they would prefer to go ahead. But as NASI points out and as Health Canada points out, that we should also respect that at this point, whatever decision a family makes, that that should be respected and they should not be stigmatized um, either way. And uh, I, it's I very understand clear the that we're all saying, and one thing that we're all saying, and I think you're not going to find a lot, is that nobody thinks that at this age there should be any mandate for children. That it should. Still well, I don't much. think anybody. I don't think anybody's talking about that yet at all. Yeah, I hope not. So, but not. but again, to me, you're confusing this issue from what we've heard uh, in the information already. I mean, again, we're, you're sort of you're sort of uh, placing uh, uh, not as much. Um, excitement around this and, and, and that it should be done as opposed to, uh, you know, we should be cautious. And this, sh- I, I'm getting the impression this should not be done in the majority of time. That's the angle you're taking here. And so that it should I, only be done for high risk. And yeah, again, what so I'm concerned I, about is just like yeah. the NACI and the Health Canada issue. With all due respect, doctor, this is just creating more yeah. confusion. So what we don't know yet about this vaccine in children is whether it will stop transmission. And that would be the main secondary benefit. Uh, And we know in adults, and this has become eminently clear, that being vaccinated does a superb job um, at protecting most of us from severe disease, hospitalization, and death. And I think it's disappointing, but we've all come to realize that what the vaccines do not do is stop somebody from actually getting COVID or transmitting the virus. I understand that. And is there so any reason we don't why five, know that? I understand children. that. So, I understand yeah. that. Um, do, uh, so should we be using this in five to eleven year olds? Uh, is there any reason not to be administering it to five to eleven year olds? I think if somebody understands that we don't yet know whether or not they will have. Uh, severe with all due respect doctor what difference does it make if we know or not whether they can transmit it what we're trying to do is protect them from it so we don't you know again that that's later information as we've all learned as adults going through this over the 86 months or 86 weeks of this but but again i'm not sure that because we don't know the information if this can if this controls spread that that's worth putting confusion into people's mind as whether they should be uh, administering this to the kids and again it's a judgment call because kids don't get severe disease it's so uncommon that uh that's we got we're going to see the impact yeah yeah i i I, we're plumb out of time here doctor so i gotta let you go but i must admit this sounds very much confusing compared to what we've been hearing all day uh dr martha fulford with his pediatric infectious disease specialist at mcmaster uh, mcmaster children's hospital and hamilton health sciences uh had a very awkward time with our last guest 
um, because it reminded me of the Nasi days when you know they would come out and hold a press conference and basically contradict everything that that Health Canada had said. Uh, Nasi's no longer speaking in public; they're doing it through Dr. Tam at the health table, and and so on and so forth. Um, and, and what I really seemed to get from the doctor was that it sounded like she was not endorsing this for everyone, and only meaning kids five to eleven, and only those that are in high risk. Uh, situations. And when I pressed her on that, she said, we still don't know. We don't know the research in these kids if it actually stops the spread. Well, we know it doesn't stop the spread in adults. So why would it stop the spread in kids? And either way, does that matter? You know, just because it, it doesn't stop the spread and it, it does stop you from getting sick, isn't that worth taking it? If we know that it doesn't stop, well, you know, the adults doesn't stop the spread. We certainly didn't stop giving it out. We increased it. We torqued it up. So uh, I hope we didn't confuse anybody there. But uh, just to reiterate... Um, they have approved the drug for, uh, the Pfizer drug vaccine for kids five to 11. Um, and, and you can take what the doctor said, um, however you, you see fit with all due respect to everybody involved. But I think this is exactly how we got into the issue with NASI and the miscommunication and, and led to, uh, the AstraZeneca, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> whatever that was, and then people shopping for the right vaccine. I mean, it created havoc when we're trying to get everybody vaccinated. So uh, I'm not sure that helped anything or, or or just made it even more confusing once bringing up what NASI and, and, and Health Canada says, although they all agree in the same thing. I, I, I'm not sure she was contradicting, but certainly was creating more confusion by trying to overly explain it, perhaps. I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, uh, we'll move on. All right, uh, we've seen what has happened in British Columbia uh, with the flooding out there and such. And uh, and later, as this goes by, we hear more about the story because, you know, this is all about a mass dump of rain that, that landed on British Columbia. And climate change has, has dealt BC a, a terrible blow over the last year or so. Um, and then as we dig deeper into the story, and I'm not discrediting anything from climate change. We certainly know that climate change uh, has affected British Columbia and, and the world and 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 they're justified in these accounts however uh, it seems that at well it is Abbotsford was built on a floodplain that was they, they literally drained a lake back in the 1920s and then formed the area that uh, is now underwater uh, and as we deal with climate change and changing uh, environments and such should we be doing this? Should we rebuild these places back where they were or just surround them with pumping stations similar to New Orleans and levees and hope everything sticks? Let's bring in Maddie Siamantiki, Professor of Geography and Planning and Interim Director of the School of Cities, University of Toronto, and with us now. Maddie, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Nice to be with you. Maddie, I don't want to diminish climate change and its impact here in any way, but gee whiz, should we we be building towns and cities on places that are below sea level like this? I don't think you're diminishing climate change at all. In fact, I think you're looking at the realities of climate change, which is uh, that uh, our world is changing. Uh, we are getting many more uh, extreme weather events. It's not just warmer, but also wilder. Uh, and with that is coming the impacts. And British Columbia got hit this year, uh, but we've seen it in all uh, different parts of the country and the world uh, as the climate changes. Uh, and we're going to have to start thinking about uh, how we build our cities, how we build our communities differently than we did in the past to, ta- to understand uh, that the climate is changing and this is going to have profound impacts. It just seems, uh, and again, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty. but if you drain a lake... And then you put a town in there, and then there's some sort of a, an event, whether it's once every year, 10 years, or a lifetime, this isn't going to bode well. Would we be surprised how many areas are in such a vulnerable position that are actually built below a floodplain or on a floodplain? Well, we're supposed to have planning rules to avoid building on floodplains, uh, but over time, uh, we've voided those, or we've avoided them, or we tried to come up with technological fixes for them. 
Uh, we tend to use a risk-based uh, planning approach uh, where we try to understand the risk. We try to look at what the 50-year flood would be or the 100-year flood would be, and that means one flood would happen of that magnitude every 50 or 100 years. And now we're starting to see floods of that scale uh, every 10 years or every five years even. Uh, and so the events, uh, the big high-impact high events are happening much more frequently, uh, and it's, it's, it's having really big impacts. This is now going to cause us to have to rethink how we build our communities uh, and even where we build our communities. Some of this is going to be about uh, public sector planning, but also some of this is going to be industry, uh, and in particular the insurance industry saying, we're not giving insurance for people who are building in those areas uh, to rebuild anymore. And so people will have to make choices then, not just from the government's perspective, but also whether they can really afford to and whether the industry will protect them, the, um, the insurance industry will protect them if, some, if a catastrophic event occurs. Can something like an Abbotsford, uh, and I don't want to just concentrate on this place, be, be fixed? Can you do something to it, or do you have to really rethink this whole area as you plan it? Can you build a big enough pump house to, to maintain this? Well, some of this is going to be about infrastructure uh, and dikes and levees, uh, and we can try to build uh, seawalls, flood protection. I mean, there's all sorts of hardening of the infrastructure uh, but at the same time, uh, a lot of this is about green infrastructure and seeing uh, if we can make the land more absorptive. Uh, we, we, we understand that uh, as we've paved over a lot of the landscape, we have a lot more runoff. The water doesn't seep into the ground as much anymore. So flooding is a big issue, and how we planned our cities in particular and communities has made it very difficult for water to run off, and, and it leads to higher impacts when flooding happens. It seems when you see where this came from British Columbia and how it actually was an overflowing river in the United States and how the water just kind of rolled right around the mountain and, you know, water goes downhill, that this should have never been done. Is, is, that, is that naive to say, considering, well, you know, this was a one-in-a-hundred-year event, but still, still in a hundred years. And again, the Fraser Valley is certainly not uh, new to flooding. I mean, it's typical of areas like that. Well, as I said, we've built all over low-lying areas, floodplains. Uh, in yeah. many instances, uh, these are areas with uh, really good soil for agriculture. Uh, there are also areas where we've built affordable housing. Uh, so these are, some, these are some of the reasons why we've built into low-lying areas, uh, but mm. the impacts are growing. Uh, it's becoming more frequent, and the impacts are becoming more profound, and we're starting to see it now. Uh, and so I think we do have to start rethinking how we build infrastructure and even where and how we build communities. Maddie Siamatiki with us, Professor of Geography and Planning and Interim Director of the School of Cities at the University of Toronto. Fascinating discussion. Maddie, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Nice being with you. Scott Radley standing by to come in. Uh, before we do that, though, uh, Will wanted to come in and uh, correct something that he said earlier because we're all about getting it right here. Uh, go ahead, Will. Take the stand. Yeah, thank you so much, Scott. Uh, I wanted to bring up, I'd made a crack about Kyle Rittenhouse earlier when we were having our discussion around the round table. I don't think it detracted from uh, the point that uh, everyone else was making, but you're right. We want to get this clear. I'd made a crack about Kyle Rittenhouse's mom driving him to the situation. No, he uh, tested in court saying he had driven himself to the state across state lines and the gun was not with him when he crossed state lines that that came from a friend's house so i did want to clarify that because everyone is correct we do want all our p's and q's crossed and dotted and everything else so we can have the real discussion so thank you and, and again we were uh, we were focusing on on the gun culture in america exactly not, you know, not trying to justify whether the court case was accurate or not i mean there's a there's a way different laws down there yeah there are up here that's for sure but all right thanks well you're welcome all thank right. you let's bring in scott radley host of the scott radley show columnist with your hamilton spectator he's with us now scott thanks for the time i hope you're doing well doing great scott all right so uh where do you want to start well let's talk about the tie cats what can we expect from saturday what what, what uh, i know that uh, obviously angelo mosca they're going to do a nice tribute to him your thoughts on this game though the final of the season well they better win they better win yeah. because uh, if they don't, um, Montreal plays Ottawa. They should win that game. And if Hamilton doesn't win and Montreal does, that means Hamilton's got to go on the road to Montreal. Hmm. And then if they win, they got to go on the road to Toronto. And then they would potentially be in the Grey Cup game here at home. Um, but they, they make their path very difficult for themselves. I mean, it's all, they've already made it difficult with last week's ridiculous performance. But they make it really difficult for themselves if they don't win this one. 
All right, Saskatchewan playing their B team. Does this matter? It doesn't matter for them. Uh, does that, it, it, that doesn't mean you can't drop the ball, though. Uh, your thoughts there? Uh, you know what, Scott? Look, I, I've said for most games this year that the Ticats have the better talent on the field. And that doesn't always translate into a win. Um, you know what? The Ticats better just... It, it, it's a team that looks at the other team's lineup and says, oh, wow, look who they're not playing. Hmm. We're going to win this one for sure. That's the team that doesn't win one. So if I'm the Ticats, if I'm Orlando Steinauer, the head coach, I have put earmuffs, like, you know, blocking the sound, not letting any player see anything, hear anything about who... You're playing a team that's wearing green and that is in second place in the West and that is really good. It doesn't matter who they are. Just mm. go out and play. All right. Who's on the show tonight? Uh, it's Friday. It's the uh, brightest conversation in Hamilton Radio. We've got so much stuff to talk about. We might even get into the, the, the thing down in the States. I'm not sure yet. But, man, that was, that was a, great, a great thing. And you know why it was great? I know you've got to run the court case. Because it's great to know that the justice system – can actually work even when there is screaming and yelling and all the other stuff going on from outside that says you have to make a certain decision or else we're going to riot. And the jury listened to the evidence and made a proper and made a decision whether it was proper or not, but made a decision based on what they heard, not just to try and do what is politically the most amenable or correct or easiest thing to do. I think that's a I think it's a healthy sign for their justice system, honestly. You know, and a lot of people up here are, are, are screaming and yelling, but you really yeah. can't compare our justice system to their justice system. And as you mentioned, what you can do down there with a gun, and I said this in the show, I mean, as soon as you get, a, you know, if you've got a guy walking past a cop with a, uh, a machine-type a machine type gun uh, carrying it towards a riot and nobody does anything, how can you be surprised by any of this? How can but, you be uh, surprised? It's a different but, culture. But here's, and I know you got to run. We, we, you and I and everyone listening did not sit on the jury and listen to every minute of Absolutely. testimony in this case. And I have and, no doubt that, I have no doubt that when that was done, that they made the decision they made within the Wisconsin law. I have no doubt about that. It's just people don't realize that it is a different set of laws in a different is, world down it there. Is, but I hate the idea that some jury might have made a decision because yeah. of the noise from outside the courtroom and what they think would have been publicly appeasing. You've got to just, it, it, yep. it speaks great about the court system that they decided based on what they heard as the evidence. Yeah. You just have to accept America for what it is. Yep. Uh, there you go. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming right up and columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's a wrap for us. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Will and Ted and Diana for contributing. And as always, we leave it to you, the CHML listener, to have the last word. Hey, bud. So sorry to hear about that fridge leaking situation. But I mean, hey. You should know, it comes with age. Hey, 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 hey.